Alright, so here we are in chapter 4. Before we start reading in this, just want to mention a couple things. One thing whenever you're reading a minor prophet like this and you're reading about these visions and things, um, you know, every once in a while I'll go and I've, when I've been stumped before just trying to figure out what something means, what something represents, you know, I've like, you go online, you know, you, or you look at commentaries and things and, I, I have read some of the most elaborate interpretations of some you know different visions in the Bible that I'm reading these things. I remember when I was younger, especially in my college days, I would read some of these books and these I would read what these guys figured out. I think, man, how did these people ever figure this out? This is so deep and it's so complicated. I'd be so impressed with these people. And as time goes on, and as I learn the Bible myself, I learned that actually most of these things aren't really that complicated. They're actually pretty simple. And the truth is, whenever you see a, a a passage like this, you know, on the surface it might seem a little difficult. But if you just a lot of times get some historical context, especially, you'll find out they're not really that complicated. And if whenever somebody gives you a super complicated, you know, answer or description for something, it's probably wrong. And I've and I've complicated some things myself in the past. I just got a little too complicated. And, you know, you just have to make sure that you um, just don't read into things. Don't decide on what you want this to mean because a lot of times you'll make the Bible, you know, you'll find a way to make it mean that. And that's, that's dangerous. And what we're about to look at here, on the surface, there's a couple things that we need to do. First off, we need to make sure we understand what this chapter would have meant for them in those days. And I'm going to show you that that is not complicated at all. It's actually pretty simple what this vision meant for them in those days. But I do believe that there is something for us here today. I believe there's something that uh, we're, we're kind of introduced to here in this passage that helps us out with something later on that is revealed. So there's some significance um, of the, that this chapter has for us today, I believe. So anyway, let's start reading in verse 1. And uh, we'll read verses 1-5. through 5. I really wanted to preach on 9-11 today. You know, it's, it's 9-11... Preach something like about never forget. I mean, you know, never forget how we got duped. I, I was one of them, and I just, I just kind of wanted to rant about that. But the thing is, it was stupidity on the internet and everything that was inspiring me, and not the scriptures. So I was like, I, I probably better stick with what the Lord gave me from the Bible. But I wanted to preach on that really bad, but it probably would have been in the flesh. So I, I stayed away from it. So, so don't get me going on that. I don't want to get sidetracked. But anyway, look at verse 1, Zechariah chapter 4. It says, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. I think this is probably you know what we call a menorah today. A candlestick that has seven separate candlesticks. The one has a bowl on the top of it. So just picture a menorah there in your head. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? The angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. So notice here how the angel asks, you know, you don't know what this is? Now, when I'm reading this passage here, I can say, I can see why Zechariah didn't know what it was. I mean, what's he supposed to make of that? But the angel's like, you don't know what this is. There's some, there's a meaning here, and he didn't, 
You know, he didn't understand it. And that's a very common thing we see when you're reading different prophecies and different, about, and different visions. Often it's an angel that's kind of, you know, talking to the prophet, or there's an angel there present with the prophet while he's seeing things. And often the prophet doesn't get what he's seeing. That was the case with Daniel. When you look at the visions of Daniel, Daniel's like, I don't get what I'm seeing. And I, I like to bring that up. That way, whenever you read these stories, and you don't just get it right away, don't feel too bad. The one who was actually watching it and seeing it didn't get it either. He had to have an angel explain it to him. And in fact, in the book of Daniel, after the angel explained to him one of the visions, he still didn't get it. So if you struggle with some of those things, don't feel too bad about it. Because even people seeing it saw it. Uh, you know, they, they struggled with it too. But now in verse 6, says, then he answered and spake unto me. This is after he's asking him, you know, I, I need to know what this is. I need to know what this means. He says, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by my, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So first off, I'm going to show you this candlestick, I believe it represents the Lord. I think that's pretty obvious that it represents the Lord. It's got the seven candlesticks on it in the previous chapter. We saw the seven spirits of God mentioned. We talked about that last week. We're not going to go into that again. But it's a it's a picture of God, a picture of the Lord and His Spirit. Um, we And then we see this message is something that's specifically to Zerubbabel. Alright? Now, what does that mean? Alright, who is Zerubbabel? That's why it's important that you kind of know some history whenever you're looking at these prophecies. And Zerubbabel, he was somebody who was the rightful king of Israel. And he was all he's also in the legal line of the Messiah. Look what it says in Matthew chapter one, verses eleven through twelve. This is actually, you know, a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Legally speaking, not physically, Zerubbabel was of the the legal line that went to Joseph. That's what we're looking at in Matthew chapter one. In Matthew chapter one it says in Josiah's beget uh Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias beget Salathiel, and Salathiel beget Zerubbabel. So right there is where we can that that's the same one that we're reading about here in Zechariah. So he was a very important figure. You know, had the children of Israel not been taken captive into Babylon, this is the guy that would have been the king. And they didn't have a king during this time because they were still in captivity. But at the same time, you can kind of understand why the people in Israel would have looked to Zerubbabel as somebody uh, who would be a leader of theirs and somebody who they would follow. And so that's exactly what he was. He was a major leader in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In Haggai, which we've showed how Haggai was, it was something uh, he prophesied the same time as Zechariah. His prophecy was just a couple months before this one that we see. And in Haggai 1 verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Shealtiel, however you say that, and Salathiel, uh, they're the same. And so understand who he was. So this prophecy... It's to him. Why? Because he's a leader in Israel during that time. He's kind of the he's kind of the guy heading things up in this rebuilding of the temple. Because that remember that's what's going on. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding Jerusalem, 
which was a major fulfillment of prophecy. So in verse 7, it says, Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. So God is basically saying here that Zerubbabel will be able to remove the mountain, figuratively speaking. In other words, God's saying there's, there's nothing that's going to get in the way here. Because it was, it was Zerubbabel who God was using to get this temple rebuilt. And uh, notice in verse um, 6, it says, This is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So God's making sure here that when it comes to this rebuilding of the temple, that God's getting the glory for it. That God gets all the praise for it. Now, God is going to use Zerubbabel. God's going to use him to do this great event, but God's wanting to make sure that he gets the credit for it. And so when he says, Who art thou, O mountain before Zerubbabel? He's just showing that there's nothing that's going to stand in your way. It's going to become like a plane. So it's like he's just figuratively speaking here, saying he's going to remove that mountain. In other words, this job is going to get done. We see in the book of uh, Nehemiah and, and Ezra how they had a lot of adversaries while they were trying to do these works and clean up the walls and get things back to normal in Jerusalem. They had a lot of adversaries. They had a lot of people working against them. And that's one of the reasons it took so long for them to get this. Or that's why God had to send these prophets along. Because they had obstacles, because they had adversaries in the way, we see that they just kind of sat around and weren't doing anything. And so God sends these prophets along to basically tell them, wake up people, get going on this, go get something done. And that and that's exactly what ended up happening. So verse 8 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. So God is showing that this project it was going to get finished. This is something that was going to get done. Now, now let's just be honest, okay? And, and I'm try I try to make this stuff as interesting as I possibly can, but so far, not that interesting, right? So far, it's like. All right, you know we're talking about a prophecy uh, that's too Zerubbabel that the temple's going to get rebuilt. You know, I'd have rather heard a message preached, you know, on the reprobate doctrine. I'd have rather heard a message preached on 9/11, or I'd have rather listen to Charles Lawson talk about UFOs or uh, Hollow Earth, or you know, so, or, you know, let's talk about Nephilim or something. You know, let's talk about something cool like that. You know, it's Wednesday night. We're going to talk about a prophecy to Zerubbabel telling them you need to go build the temple and nothing's going to stop you from building that temple. That's boring. Well, you know what? That's your problem right there. You all have let these things like that that just don't seem super exciting. You, you know, we've ignored these things. We've neglected to learn about, you know, learn these passages and learn the history of these things. And we have opened the floodgates for false prophets to be able to come in and use passages from the book of Zechariah to get us all confused on end times. And to get us all, and especially when it comes to Israel. Now, everybody loves a good message just, you know, ripping on Israel and showing how the Jews are not the chosen people. But do you understand one of the reasons many Baptists think that they are the chosen people is because uh, preachers are pulling verses from books like Zechariah and saying that, you know, these things are not fulfilled yet. 
And people have no idea what these passages are all about. There, whenever I went to Israel and I'm in the airplane, we see these Orthodox Jews getting on there and the leader of our group comes up and he says, you see that right there? That's fulfillment of prophecy. I'm like, really? You know what? You know, and he's like, they're returning to their homeland. And he was talking about how you know God's regathering the nation of Israel. He's bringing them all back. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Of course, he didn't say anything on the way home when those same Orthodox Jews were on the plane on the way home too. He didn't say anything about that. And I remember being really disappointed. I was like, I guess I didn't see a prophecy get fulfilled. But you say, you know. How is it that people get so caught up in that stupidity? I'll tell you why. It's because when it comes to, you know, the the doctrines of Israel, when it comes to the pre-trib rapture, these are just beloved doctrines that they don't want to give up. They're stubborn about these things, and they will use anything to hang on to those doctrines. And so it doesn't matter that we have pulverized them with Galatians chapter three and four. It doesn't matter that we have, you know, we have used the New Testament to just, I mean, show them clearly that we're the chosen people. It doesn't matter that Peter said, "Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, peculiar people." It doesn't matter that we have all those things because you know what they have? They have all the prophecies about 1948 and God bringing Israel back to their land. They've got all these verses in the book of Jeremiah that Sam Gipp can go to, and in the minor prophets that all these experts can go to. To show how God's not done with Israel. But the truth is, many of these passages they're using are ones that are they've already been fulfilled. But because we're clueless about these things, because we get bored about this stuff, we're 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 missing these things and we don't know how to take these people to task on these subjects. We don't know how to show that show them the truth. And if the truth is, if we pay attention to some of these things, I know it's technical stuff, but it's important stuff. And we need it if we're going to understand everything that we're supposed to understand about the Bible and if we're going to continue destroying these people and their arguments. Because they're getting desperate. They're getting desperate. They can't use Matthew 24 anymore because you know they, they've lost their imminency argument because they're not allowed to say no man knows the day they are anymore. They, they can't use Genesis 12 anymore because we've already just thoroughly shown how Galatians 3 makes it clear that's not talking about descendants, it's talking about Christ. They can't use those things anymore. So what are they doing? They're desperately going to vague Old Testament Scriptures that we've not taken the time to study thoroughly. And we've got to get these things down. Otherwise, they're going to keep going to Romans 11 saying, and so then all Israel shall be saved. You know, And then they'll refer, and then they'll, they'll preach that in churches. They'll say, Romans 11 proves... And so all Israel shall be saved is like it's this future event that's to come. And then they will proceed to take people down a journey through these minor prophets and read verses and just take them out of context about the regathering of Israel, not realizing these things have been fulfilled. Okay, And what the reason this passage right here is extremely important is because when he's saying here, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands also shall finish it and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. God showing this project is going to be fulfilled by Him is a major fulfillment in prophecy. It's a major fulfillment. 
many of these prophecies that we read about in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, these, these prophecies are about the regathering of Israel during this time right here. During the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, they're right in that time. And this rebuilding of the temple is huge. And there's a lot of verses that people often go to in the Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel acting like it's some future thing for Israel and they don't even realize, no, that already happened. Proof of it is right here what we're reading in Zechariah. This was a major thing. It was a major fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to this. It was proof of God's mercy toward Israel. Remember, while they were in Babylon, they didn't have a temple. They were not in their land. They deserved it. They got what they deserved. But yet, God was merciful to them. God remembered His covenant with Abraham. God brought them back to the land. God let their temple get. God rebuilt their temple. God gets the credit for it in here. God did all these things. He fulfilled all these promises that pre-tribbers today are still saying are yet to be fulfilled. And the truth is, there are some things in Isaiah and Jeremiah that are yet to be fulfilled. Some things. But understand that those things that did not get fulfilled, it was because of the fact that Israel did not do their part in some of those things. We've seen some of the disclaimers that are in the Old Testament. We've seen some disclaimers here in Zechariah. and But yet, we do see that while they didn't do what they were supposed to do, God did the things that He said He was going to do. So some of the things that were going to come later as a result of them doing what they were supposed to do, those things have not happened because they didn't do their part. And they, these people, they don't even realize that because of that, because of their failure to do that part, when Jesus Christ came and they rejected the Messiah, that was the final straw. And God did move on to the Gentiles at that point. And yes, I know, God's not done with Israel. Why? Because when He returns, He's going to tell them to bring all those that didn't want Him to reign over Him and slay them before Me. So yeah, God's not done with Israel. I forgot what, I forgot what verse of Scripture that is. I asked Steve Boffman if he would like make a t-shirt that says that God's not done with Israel and then have that passage on there. You know, those that would not, I should reign over and bring before me and slay them, I, or however that is exactly. I, I want to get that on a T-shirt, or if somebody's good at Photoshop, make up a good thing like that. And I'm not even going to put the verse on there. I'm just going to put the reference and just put on there. God's not done with Israel. Make it look real Zionisty. Share it on Facebook, and like the Zionists will be sharing that thing like crazy. They won't even look up the reference. And then, <laughs> so that that's that's something I'm planning on doing here in the next couple of days, just to cause trouble. But uh, you know. You know, it's it's true. It's true. God's not done with Israel. Just not in the way these people are thinking. So, you know, this temple, uh, so this temple that was built also, this is something else we need to understand. This was something that should have helped bring about the reign of the Messiah. Okay? And remember, when Jesus, and one thing, I, I'm, I'm not ready to do this yet. Very soon. I am hoping to have. I'm hoping to preach a message that will be like the message. This one sermon is going to help unlock all the mysteries of the minor prophets. All right, 
Now, I'm, I'm really talking big on that. Will I succeed in that? I don't know. But I'm determined to figure out how to do it. Basically, what I want to do in this sermon is to show what would have happened or what was supposed to happen when the Messiah came. Okay? Obviously, God always knew they were going to kill the Messiah. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But in order for you to disobey God, there has to have been something that you were supposed to obey. Y'all, y'all get that? So what was it they were supposed to obey? You know, if you, if God sets before you a blessing and a curse, you know, what's a blessing and what's a curse? And it's like, we, we forget to, you know, that there is kind of a what if that we can talk about. Obviously, it was never going to happen, but if we understand the what if, it'll help us understand a lot of these passages in the Bible. So hopefully, I'll be able to find out how to do that subject justice. That's what I've got to do. It's going to, it's going to be a challenge. So, I don't know for sure when I'm going to get it done, but anyway, uh, th- so you know this temple it should have helped bring about the reign of the Messiah. They were supposed to build this temple because remember, in reality, it was God that built this temple, right? Or God who got the credit for it. But at the same time, you know, th- and you know, this temple it never did fulfill what it was supposed to fulfill. Why? The problem was the people. So whenever Jesus Christ came, we have looked at prophecies about how you know the Messiah was, or you know how the Messiah was going to build the temple, or he was going to build this temple. But the truth is, remember what Jesus said: "Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again." I personally think when he said that, that was kind of a reference too to some of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that was going to come and rebuild the temple. And the truth is, when Jesus came, he didn't build that Ezekiel temple that we see. What happened though? He did sacrifice his own body and then he raised it from the dead. And his body is the temple. His body was the sacrifice, and therefore we don't need uh, we don't need a temple made with hands anymore. So that so I say all that to just say that this prophecy that Zechariah is showing is going to come to pass in your days. Zerubbabel's gonna finish the work. This is a major thing that a lot of pre-tribbers pretend never happened. But it happened. It did happen. It did take place. When Jesus was on earth, there was a temple in Jerusalem. And it's like they forget that. And so all these, and Israel was in their land during that time. And so it's like they all forget that. And whenever they see anything going on in, over in Israel, it's fulfillment of prophecy. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu belched in public. It's fulfillment of prophecy. You know, I mean, it was anything that happens. Fulfillment of prophecy, they make a big deal about it, like it's, you know, and they'll go to some passage, something like Zechariah, and people fall for it. So verse 10 says, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. So the work that's being done, it was something that God was in on. Zerubbabel was the man that God was using. But God is the one that's making this happen and accomplishing it. So then, in verse 11, it says, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones 
that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, this is the part that I think gets a little interesting here. because Now, we know who these two olive trees are, don't we? Who do you all think the two olive trees are? Elijah and Moses. But now, how do you know that? Somebody tell me. What what passage? Well, Moses did. Moses did, but at the same time, it, we're going we're to look at this in a minute. It was Moses and Elijah that were with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, correct? When you read Revelation chapter eleven, and you and, and we're not going to well, let's, let's go ahead and turn over to Revelation chapter eleven because I think this is important. I do. I agree there are Moses and Elijah, but here's the thing: Revelation wasn't written yet when Zechariah gave this prophecy. The Mount of Transfiguration hadn't happened yet. Everyone who tries to prove that this was Moses and Elijah, they use the Mount of Transfiguration in Revelation chapter 11. And I believe that is appropriate. But remember, we're trying to figure out what this prophecy meant to them in that day. So how would they have known that? Would they have known who it was? Would they have known it was Moses and Elijah? So let me turn over to Revelation chapter 11. In verse 3, it says, And I will give uh, power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. I think right here, when he calls them that, when he says these are the two olive trees, well, when were olive trees mentioned in the book of Revelation? Well, they weren't. This is something that's. This is referring back to Zechariah. I personally don't think that they knew in Zechariah's day who these two olive trees were. I think that was a mystery that didn't get revealed until the book of Revelation. It says, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. That sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? Elijah made it stop raining. That was one of the miracles he did. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. That sounds a lot like Moses. It says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. All right? And then you all know what happens. They're dead for three and a half days and then they rise from the dead. Now, what's the significance of that? What's what is the what's the importance of that? Why is that going to happen? What does that mean when these two witnesses come and they are killed? There, there's a reason for this, and I think I think it's you know obviously it's all connected. This Bible's all one book, but first off. Let's let's go back to Zechariah and just try to figure out you know what does what did this mean to them in those days? Okay, because here's to summarize chapter four, it's actually pretty simple what it's talking about. Chapter four is basically a chapter where God is showing that He's going to use the rubble to rebuild the temple and that it's going to get done. That's pretty much it. Somebody wants to get real complicated on that and go into all this deep prophecy and make it about something in the future. That's just foolish. It's a pretty simple vision just showing the temple's going to get built in Zerubbabel's day. 
And that was important to them because they had been looking for this for a very long time. And wouldn't it mean something to us if a prophet came to us and gave us a vision saying, because what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the return of Christ, right? And if the Lord, you know, and if we received a vision saying, you know, the Lord's going to return, you know, in Pastor Tommy's day. Okay, now that doesn't tell us exactly what we want to know, but it gives us a rough idea, doesn't it? It knows that before I die, you know, and, and that would kind of be comforting, wouldn't it? Because have you ever thought, you know, have you ever heard a preacher say, you know, the Lord might not come for another hundred years? You know, and what do we all think? Shut up. You know, don't say that. You know, that, that's not what we want. But, you know, he could be right. But what if there was something that showed, hey, it's not going to be a hundred years? You know, and that was kind of, this was a thing they were looking for, their temple being rebuilt, and he's just showing that, yes, it's going to get done, but this isn't some just prophecy I'm giving you that might just come way down the road in the future. No, this is something that's going to happen in Zerubbabel's day. He's going to finish the work. So this would have been a very comforting thing to them. It's going to be done by the Lord who is represented by that candlestick that's standing in between, and He's standing in between the two olive trees. So right there, that's basically the gist of the prophecy. But Zechariah, he wants to know who these two olive trees are. And he basically tells them these are just two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's all he told them. That's all he revealed. He didn't give the names he didn't uh, get real specific on their role. In fact, uh, notice what it says that they did. I think is interesting because it says in verse 12, which be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves. Okay, I, I think that's kind of interesting. And I'll get back to that in a minute. I'll tell you what I think that means. So... All they could have known is that these were two special individuals that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's it. But the truth is, he said these two probably did remain a mystery until Revelation chapter 11 was given. Some may have figured it out after the Mount of Transfiguration. But let's go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Because I think, I think there's some, something interesting here that we're, very interesting that we're going to see that I was kind of surprised when I saw this connection because it wasn't a connection I was trying to make. I just saw it and was like, wow, that, that makes perfect sense. It makes me more convinced something else I've been, you know, I've been preaching about was right. But um, look at verse 1. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And His disciples asked them, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Alright, so let's stop here for a minute. So notice how as soon as Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, one of the first things He mentions, 
he mentions not to tell you until he is risen from the dead. And I've talked before about how it does appear after the Mount of Transfiguration that there's this kind of a new focus on Jesus. It's like that's when he just kind of begins this path to Calvary. And he starts talking more about his death that's about to come real soon. So the disciples, though, they're confused at this point because now he's talking about his death, but then they bring up how the scribes say that Elias must first come. And where did they get that from? We've showed before and I don't have time to repeat it. We see that in the book of Malachi. That Elijah was, he was going to send Elijah before the day of the Lord. He was going to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children. And so it says in verse 11, Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already and they knew him not, but they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise also shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that He spake unto them of John the Baptist. So notice here that Jesus tells them, no, the scribes have that right. It was, yes, this was the plan. I'm going to send Elijah and He's going to prepare everything. But, they killed Him. And they're going to kill Me. Therefore, the plan that you all were expecting, the, the chain of events that you all were expecting is not going to happen. It's not going to happen that way anymore because they did whatever they wanted. They rejected the message of John the Baptist. They killed him and they are going to kill me. That's, that's what he's saying right there. And I think it's interesting that he says that right after the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah, the two olive trees, appear. And so, keep, keep all these things in mind because if we're right about... you know, And the truth is, if we're right about Revelation 11, that it's Moses and Elijah, and if the Mount of Transfiguration is kind of a connection there, you know, there's no doubt that's who we're talking about here in Zechariah 4.11 and 12 that it's Moses and Elijah. But why Moses and Elijah... Why are these two guys so important? And I personally believe it's because Moses and Elijah, they represent the Old Testament. They represent the law, Moses and Elijah, the prophets. And isn't that what Jesus always talked about? He always talked about the law and the prophets. You know, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear the one rose from the dead. What did, what was the mistake that Israel did when they rejected the Messiah? The mistake was they rejected the law and the prophets, didn't they? They rejected the law and the prophets. And here's the thing. What are the Jews doing today? The Jews today who rejected the law and the prophets are going around parading themselves around as these Torah observers as though they are still following the law and the prophets. They, and they are lying about it. The synagogue of Satan lies when they say they're following the law and the prophets. Her preacher one time on YouTube, or on YouTube, on Twitter, he was a preacher that I know was like bashing Muslims on there, and I'm sure there's a lot of them bashing Muslims today because of 9-11. But then he talked about how we need to stand with Israel, we need to side with Israel, because we have the same God as Israel and the Muslims don't. Wrong. We do not have the same God that Israel has. They rejected God. 
If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. They are not the people of God. That is in total violation of the Scriptures. That totally contradicts what Jesus says. And the thing is, and I used to say this. I'm ashamed of it. I'm embarrassed. It was just repeating what I heard. I used to say, well, you know, what's the difference between Jews and Christians? Well, Jews follow the Old Testament. We follow the New Testament. Wrong. Jews don't follow the Old Testament. Jesus told them that. You know, Paul thought they, they, they do not follow the Old Testament, yet they have been parading themselves around as following the Old Testament. Now, what is it that we learn in the book of Romans? If we are not, if we're not saved, then we are under the law, aren't we? And the, so the Jews, because they have rejected grace, because they don't have faith, they are under the law. So what's going to happen when they are under the law? Well, I personally think the significance of the two witnesses is I think it's the law and the prophets witnessing against Israel during that final three and a half years. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to torch those guys. They are, and you know what? I believe when they kill Moses and Elijah, I think that's the picture of them Killing the law and the prophets. Once again, rejecting the law and the prophets. They've been lying for the last 2,000 years saying they're following the law and the prophets and they're not. And when the law and the prophets show up and are preaching to them, they're going to end up having them killed through the Antichrist. And they're going to be excited about it. And they're going to celebrate over it. And that's they, you know, they killed the new covenant with Jesus Christ and they're killing the old covenant again. They reject all of it. They hate all of it. And I believe that Moses and Elijah, they represent those two things. And so when you see you know, those olive branches too that are going through that candlestick and through those golden pipes, why is it saying that? Because the Old Testament is all about Jesus. We already proved last week that that candlestick, it's, it's Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament, it is all about Jesus. And for you to say you follow the Old Testament and reject Christ, it makes no sense at all. And these Baptists that act like you know that Israel is following the Old Testament, they are either just blind or just ignorant parrots. Okay? And that's all I was when I said that stuff. Obviously I hadn't studied it or I'd have never said that. Nobody who has ever studied anything about Israel would ever say that they follow the Old Testament. That that is a ridiculous, ignorant thing to say. And I'm embarrassed I ever said it. But it's just reality. And so, you know, know, in Zechariah, when we see... So let's look at... So just quickly, let's look at these three appearances of these two olive trees. So in Zechariah, we see that they are a part of God's plan for the building of the temple where the Messiah would come under the Old Covenant and offer an acceptable offering. That's what we see in Malachi. So we kind of see that they're a part of that. Okay, when, when this prophecy has been given about the temple, who do we see? We see the two olive trees. We see Moses and Elijah. In Matthew 17, we see them with Christ shortly before everything kind of changes direction and we see Jesus' journey towards the cross. You know what I personally think happened right there? I think their role was postponed. 
is what I think. I think these their role was postponed. You know why? Because Israel was not ready for for their role. You know, they had already killed John the Baptist and they were going to kill Jesus. So whatever role they they were going to play, it got put, it got put on hold. Remember, things changed when they rejected the message of John the Baptist and they rejected Jesus Christ. All of God's prophecies that He has, you know, He's still going to do His part in the end time, but He said some things did change. We've been showing that over the weeks, and I believe their role was postponed. And then in Revelation 11, I believe their ministry is completely one of condemnation because of everyone's failure to follow the Law and the Prophets. It's almost like they're being judged by the Law and the Prophets before that great day of God Almighty comes. Because it's like here you've got a people that's been praying themselves around for 2,000 years saying we're following the Law, we're Torah observers, whatever. And then, before Jesus comes and just kind of wipes them all out, the Law and the Prophets basically show up. And are calling them out and revealing them to be the frauds that they are. And it's completely one of condemnation. And so, I believe when they kill them, that's just once again showing their just utter rejection of the Scriptures, their utter rejection of God. There will be no excuse for them at this point. When Jesus Christ comes and He returns at that battle of the great day of God Almighty, and when He proves that yes, He is not done with Israel, and He asks them to bring all those before Him that would not that He should reign over them, nobody's going to be able to look at Jesus at that time and say He's a bad guy when He has them all killed. Nobody's going to be able to say that. They have rejected and rejected and rejected over and over again while at the same time parading themselves around as followers of the Old Testament, as followers of Jehovah, that kind of thing makes God mad. And they are they are the synagogue of Satan. There's no doubt about that. And Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets prove it. They are condemned by these things. And it's you know what, it's time we stop letting these people go around parading themselves as Old Testament observers. That needs to be called out. When preachers say that kind of junk that that we serve the same God that the Jews do, that needs to be called out. When somebody ignorantly says they follow the Old Testament, that needs to be called out. And and I've heard, and this is the thing that makes me mad too, because I've brought this up before. When people are trying to defend Israel, I say, how are they following the law? They don't. Are they doing sacrifices? You know what they always say? Well, they can't because they don't have a temple right now. Okay, so first off, if they had a temple, do we really think that sacrificing animals would help them after reading the book of Hebrews? But that's what they'll say. They'll say, well, they don't have a temple yet. But that's why God's got to restore them. Once they're all back in their land, then they're going to rebuild that temple. Like it's this wonderful thing. Folks, it, it's, and it's like they just completely ignore the fact that the whole point of that temple, it's for the Antichrist to go declare himself to be God. You know, what do they think Moses and Elijah are doing those three and a half years when they're preaching outside Jerusalem, torching people, 
Do they do we think they're torturing the enemies of the Jews during that time? That doesn't make sense because Jerusalem's supposed to be compassed about with armies during that time, meaning they're not in there yet. It means they've got to be torturing Jews during that time. It's just it's the insanity is just off the charts when it comes to this subject. And you know, I want to study these things. I want to know all these things because I want to leave no stone unturned. If they bring up some you know, vague verse from the book of Zechariah, I want to be able to put these people in their place and prove to them they're ignorant when they try to make things like they're a future event that God has fulfilled. And when they come and they say, well, you think God's a liar because He's not going to fulfill you know, His promise them to rebuild their temple. Um, no, God's not. He's not a liar. He did fulfill that promise. And they just, but it's just ignorant. So we've got to pay attention to these things. They are very important. And to sum up Zechariah 4 again, what we need to learn here, what we can learn from this is that God gets the credit for what's accomplished when it comes to everything, and especially our salvation. And that's what he was showing right here in Zechariah 4 when he was prophesying that, hey, it's going to get done, but just so you know, this was done by my power. I did this. I got the credit for it. And you know what? The temple that takes away our sins is the body of Jesus Christ and He gets full credit. He gets full credit for our salvation. We glorify Him. And you know, and maybe this has something to do with it. Remember in Matthew chapter 24, remember the disciples? They're walking outside Jerusalem and they're looking at the, they're looking at the buildings. Yeah, look at these buildings. Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they magnificent? But what did Jesus say to them about those buildings that they had built? There shall not be one stone left upon another. These buildings aren't going to get the job done for you. Only Jesus Christ. He basically said, only I'm going to get the job done for you. So anyway, I hope that was a help to you. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. Help us to learn from these things. Lord, help us not to gloss over these passages. Lord, help us to study these things out and understand what they mean so we will not be deceived by false prophets who misuse passages from books like Zechariah. I pray You'll help us to uh, you know, get the moral of this, Lord, that we give You credit for everything that's done and that we glorify You in everything. We always remember... Uh, that You are what accomplished everything when it comes to our salvation. In Your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.